Revelation chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 14. Let's read the word of the Lord together. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Father, open our hearts today, I pray, that we may hear and receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I pray for clarity of thought and of speech so that I can communicate your truth today. And from your word, I pray that we will grow and be strengthened, that you will challenge us, and that our lives will be transformed by the work of your spirit today. I lift up to you other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I pray especially, Lord, for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I ask that you will draw them to a place of repentance so that not one of them will be lost. I pray all of these things today in the only name that matters, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last several weeks, I've been looking with you at some letters the Lord Jesus wrote through the beloved elder John to seven churches of the first century that were located in what we now call Asia Minor. The first letter, you remember, was to the church at Ephesus, the Orthodox Church. Then there was the letter to the church at Smyrna, the Suffering Church. That was followed by the letter to the church at Pergamum, the Compromising Church. After that was the letter to the church at Thyatira, the backslidden church. Then came the letter to the church at Sardis, the lifeless church. Last week, we looked at the letter to the church at Philadelphia, the church of the open door. And that brings me to the last of these letters and the last of the churches, the church at Laodicea. 
as we look at this letter, I want you to keep in mind that this isn't a letter written to people who have no knowledge of God. This isn't a letter to people who considered themselves unbelievers. This is a letter that was written to a Christian church of the first century, and it could just as easily have been written to the church of the 21st century. It's a letter that not only speaks historically to a church in an ancient city, but it speaks on a personal level to those who are part of this worship experience today. And as the letter opens, I want you to notice the identity of the person writing the letter. There's no question as to the author of this letter. This isn't an anonymous note somebody placed in the offering box. <clears throat> when you examine the contents of the letter, you discover there are no words of commendation here. In fact, it is a scathing rebuke. But even though the letter is a hard one to hear and receive, Jesus signs the letter. Verse 1, Jesus identifies himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice, he first identifies himself as the amen. That, that word amen means true. It also carries the idea of finality. When Jesus identifies himself as the amen, he is revealing himself as the final one. He is the final truth. You know, in the New Testament, when Jesus says, verily, verily, anybody remember reading that? Well, that's another way of saying, amen, amen. In addition to meaning, sit up and pay attention, it's also a way of saying, this is the final truth about the matter. I want you to understand today that Jesus is the final truth. Everything you need or want to know about God, you will find in Jesus. That's what it means in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is the Son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is the final truth. You know, there are people <clears throat> they, who run from conference to conference looking for a word. They'll go from church to church trying to find a word. There are people going from seminar to seminar looking for truth. Some travel from revival to revival looking for some new revelation. I've discovered some would rather listen to prophetess so-and-so instead of listen to Jesus. Well, I came to this pulpit today to tell you that what you really need is not another conference, not another seminar, not another prophet, not another seer, not another interpreter of dreams. What you really need is not a visit to Madam Ruby. What you really need is not a phone call to your 1-900-psychic hotline. What you need is to go to Jesus. If you're looking for truth, look to Jesus. He is the omnipotent. Man, he is the final truth. Anything you hear that can't be confirmed by the word isn't God. See, just because somebody stands up in your face and says, the Lord told me to tell you, doesn't necessarily mean the Lord is within a hundred miles of it. 
if it's of God, it will line up in agreement with the Word of God. Not just the printed Word, but it will line up with the incarnate Word, who is Jesus. If it doesn't line up with the Word, God didn't say it. And the question you need to come to terms with is this. Is Jesus the amen, the final truth of your life? Are you living by what some creed said? Are you living by what some philosopher or some philosophy said? Are you living by what some preacher said? Are you living by what you read in some book or what you saw on the internet? Or are you living by what Jesus said? That's the real question. Jesus is the amen, the final one. Read his words. Live by his words. Then he identifies himself as the faithful one. He says he's faithful and true. What that means is that you can count on what he says. All of his promises are true. Somebody ought to just say amen right there. Jesus isn't like some people who are so fickle you can never count on them. Jesus isn't like some of our modern conveniences and technologies. You know, a lot of those are, are designed with planned obsolescence. They, you know, they, they build it into it. You know, I've got a cell phone that works for a short period of time, and then all of a sudden, I don't care how much money I paid for it, it just doesn't work like it's supposed to work. Why? Well, they built into it that when they come out with a new version, something is going to go wrong with this one, so I will have to get the, the, the new and improved model. They're designed with a limited shelf life. Just when you think it's running smoothly, it crashes. I want to tell you, but you can depend on Jesus. He's with you through thick and thin. He's always faithful. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. You see, there's a great theological concept in the Bible called the immutability of Christ. What that simply means is that Jesus never changes. He is today everything that he was yesterday and what he will be tomorrow. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can be counted on. I tell you, if he took care of his people in ages past, you can be certain that he's taking care of his people today. And if he's taking care of you today, you can be certain he will take care of you tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the day after that and on and on and on throughout all eternity. He is the faithful and true one. Jesus is the final one. Jesus is the faithful one. Then he identifies himself as the first one. He says he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, there are some who read that phrase and think it means that Jesus is the first one created by God. But that word beginning literally means origin. And the phrase means that Jesus is the beginning of everything. He is the one who originates God's creation. He isn't the first one created by God. Rather, he is the one who creates all that is. Now, that's an important distinction because to say that Jesus is the first one created by God takes away his deity. It makes him less than God. 
If he is less than God, then he doesn't have the kind of power it takes to do the work he claimed to do. But the Bible is very clear in its claims that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. He is himself God. That's what it means in John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The passage makes it very clear when it talks about the Word that it's talking about Jesus because verse 14 of that chapter says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth that's why jesus said in john 10 30 i and the father are one that's what it means in colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 18 and he is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things have been created by him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together he is also head of the body the church and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead so that he himself might come to have first place in everything he is the origin of all of God's creation he is the one who begins the creation of God you know there is a theory that is taught in schools about how things in this world came into being it says something like this you know billions of years ago chemicals in the sea acted upon by sunlight and cosmic energy formed themselves by chance into one or more single-celled organisms which have since developed through random mutation and natural selection into all living plants, animals, and people. Now, I realize that's a very simplified version of what, what's taught, you, okay, but, but you get the idea. <clears throat> but I do have some questions about that theory. If that scenario is indeed true, then I want to know where did the sunlight and the cosmic energy come from? And where did the chemicals come from? And where did the sea come from? And with all the complexity in this universe that defies the idea of random chance, where is the master designer behind all this complexity? Who is the architect? I'm suggesting there really is only one explanation that makes any kind of sense to an honest seeker with a rational mind. There is a master planner. There is a master builder. There is one who stands behind it all and over it all and holds it all in his hand and upholds it all by the word of his power and it is none other than the Lord Jesus the originator of all of God's creation the one who spoke and said let there be and everything that exists came into being so that's the identity of the person writing the letter then I want you to pay attention to the indictment he makes against this church it's made on the basis of two things. First, this church is indicted because of their indifference. Look again at verses 15 and 16, if you would. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, remember, when Jesus writes this letter, he's talking to believers, he isn't talking to sinners. He isn't talking to people of the world. He isn't talking to the unregenerate. He's talking to the church. Who is the church? 
Everybody raise your hand if you're the church. Okay. And, and this, 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 this indictment, it's not a contrast between those who are saved and those who are lost. It isn't even a contrast between those who are on fire and those who are cold in their walk with the Lord. Notice when you read it, Jesus seems to think that hot is a desirable condition, but he also seems to think that cold is just as desirable. He says, I wish that you were hot or cold. I'll take either one, right? You know, on a cold winter morning, nothing is as satisfying as a hot coffee. Or for those of us who don't drink coffee, a hot chocolate. Or a cup of warm cider or something, you know. In the summertime, when I stumble into the house after mowing the lawn, nothing is as refreshing as a drink of tall, a tall, cool glass of lemonade or water, you know, the condensation beating on the outside of the glass, right? Come on, somebody. When Jesus calls the Laodiceans lukewarm, he's saying, one, they've lost their ability to satisfy and comfort, and on the other hand, they've lost their ability to refresh. They've become complacent, passive, comfortable, lost their zeal, lost their passion. They've become lukewarm to the point that the Lord is sick of it. Let, let, let me ask you real quick. How do you make a drink hot? You build a fire under the pot, right? It requires energy to make something hot, okay? How do you make a drink cold? Put in some ice or put it in the refrigerator. Again, it requires energy. So what is required to make a drink lukewarm? Nothing. You just let it sit there. Some degree of effort and energy is required to keep something hot or to keep something cold. Nothing is required for it to be lukewarm. The condition develops simply by the accommodation of the liquid to its surroundings. The works of the Laodiceans reflect an accommodation to their environment and the loss of their Christian temperament. Their faithful witness had become indistinguishable from their surroundings. When you look at the people who make up the church in this present age, you begin to realize this wasn't just the condition of Laodicea, but it's a present condition. It's a present problem. See, everywhere you look, you find churches that are filled with lukewarm Christians. What do you do with a lukewarm Christian? I mean, they aren't cold enough to offer refreshment. They aren't hot enough to comfort and satisfy. It's really hard to tell a lukewarm Christian from the unregenerate culture in which he or she lives. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You aren't soothing and comforting and sustaining others. You aren't refreshing and invigorating others. You aren't hot. You aren't cold. You aren't standing against injustice. You aren't caring for widows and orphans. When you go to your job, you act just like your co-workers looking out for number one. 
and, and maybe you don't tell racist jokes at the water cooler, but you laugh at them. Or maybe you don't laugh, but you keep quiet and you don't challenge the one telling it. Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know you're just going with the flow of the culture. And instead of keeping yourself morally pure, you're being sexually intimate before marriage. And you're cheating on your spouse. And you're divorcing in order to be with someone else. You're accommodating to the culture around you. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You're just fitting in with the culture. Thinking your happiness is more important than your holiness. The Lord isn't removed from your life, but you've relegated him to a back shelf and only bring him out when you're in trouble or on those Sundays when nothing else will interfere and you show up for the time of worship. Being hot or cold requires something of you. It's easy to be lukewarm. All you have to do to be lukewarm is nothing. Church of Jesus Christ is full of lukewarm Christians. I hate to admit it, but this church has its share of lukewarm Christians. You aren't bad people. You aren't evil people. You're just indifferent. Instead of transforming the culture, you've started reflecting the culture. You're lukewarm. <laughs> you know... You, you may not know this, but the bulk of a pastor's creative energy is spent trying to figure out how to minister to and how to motivate and how to energize and how to mobilize lukewarm Christians. The bulk of a pastor's prayer time is spent praying for a fire to be ignited under lukewarm Christians. And quite frankly, I have to tell you, I have a hard time understanding lukewarm Christians. See... <clears throat> When you were out in the world, when you were lost, you didn't think twice about partying hardy. When you were out in the world, the devil had all of you. But now that you're saved, God just gets the leavings. Oh, you know it's true. You would, you would stay out all night and stagger into work the next day. But you won't come to prayer meeting because you have to get up early the next morning. And woe be to the pastor if you do come and the service goes a little longer than you had planned for it to go. You'll punch a time clock but stumble in late for an audience with the almighty ruler of the universe in worship. You'll work 60 or more hours a week to get ahead in the corporation but begrudge 15 minutes spent in devotions with the lover of your soul. God has been relegated to a little corner of your world. And it's a good thing for him to be there on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week you barely give a nod in his direction. Church is fine as long as it doesn't get in the way of things like work and recreation and family and a thousand and one things we put ahead of the most important thing, and that's a relationship with the Heavenly Father. Uh, you know what Jesus says about lukewarm people in this letter? He says, you make me want to throw up. Church is under indictment because of indifference, but they're also indicted because of ignorance. Did you see that? 
He says in verse 17, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They said they were wealthy, but they were spiritually bankrupt. There is a teaching that has developed in the church that has done considerable damage to people and to the message of the kingdom of God. It's the teaching that possessions and earthly riches are a sign of God's favor on your life. It's the teaching that bigger and more opulent is more spiritual. Listen, Jesus isn't impressed by the label on your clothes or your designer handbag. He isn't impressed by your luxury automobile. He isn't impressed by the size of your bank account or your real estate holdings. He isn't impressed by your education. He isn't impressed by your resume. Jesus looks at the true condition of the heart to determine wealth. It isn't what you have in the bank. It's what's in heaven's bank that makes you rich or poor. There are some materially poor, but they are rich in Jesus. These lukewarm Christians were not only ignorant of their real poverty, but also of their nakedness. They say they're clothed, but they're naked. The very thing they were noted for in Laodicea, which was the expensive garments made from the luxurious, violent black wool of the sheep they raised, Jesus turns it all around and condemns their ignorance of their spiritual nakedness. And then they say they can see, but they are blind. See, they make eye salve to treat the eyes and improve their vision, when all the while Jesus says, you're spiritually blind. Helen Keller said that what is worse than being born blind is to have sight and no vision. The truth is that it's easy for us to see the problem of somebody else and miss the problem in our own life. It's easy to see the problem the pastor has when he starts preaching sermons like this and miss the fact that it could be he's right. And I'm the one who needs to hear what the Spirit is saying to me. It's easy to see all the bad people in the world and miss your own faults. It's easy to shake your head at all the adulterers in the world and fail to see that when you put any other pursuit ahead of God, you are committing spiritual adultery. It's easy to talk about the one who lies and steals and cheats and murders. It's easy to look down on the drunkards and the drug addicts while all the while you ignore the self-righteous robe of piety you pull about yourself and you say with the Pharisee, I thank God I am not like those people. And it's nothing more than pride and you fail to realize that pride is the most hideous of sins. It's the sin that caused the downfall of Lucifer, the anointed cherub, and God says he resists the proud. You know, Jesus talked about trying to get trying to help somebody get the speck out of his eye when you have a telephone pole sticking out of yours? Oh, God, give us spiritual eyes to see ourselves the way we are seen by you. We are indicted because of indifference and ignorance. That brings us to the place of the letter where we can see the invitation. It's in verses 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Notice that the invitation of the Lord comes as a demonstration of his love. You know, even the rebuke, as harsh and scathing as it is, it's not done in a spirit of harshness. The only reason for writing this letter is because the Lord loves you. The only reason for preaching this kind of message is because the Lord loves you. See, you don't discipline those you don't care about. The message to lukewarm, indifferent, ignorant Christians is the same as it has always been. Repent. And the call is made with tears in the eyes of the Lord. And then we see the invitation of love. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's knocking. He's at the door of the church, knocking. He's at the door of your heart, knocking. Remember, this letter isn't written to sinners, it's written to the church. It isn't the heart of the heathen on which he's knocking. It's his own people. The Lord is knocking, trying to get into the heart that is already his. He's knocking, trying to get into the church that is already his. The very place where you would think Jesus would be most welcome is the place he's pleading to gain entrance. I suppose many of us are familiar with the painting by Holman Hunt of Jesus standing outside of the door of the human heart knocking. The title of the painting is Jesus, the Light of the World. It's gone all over the world and been shown. Someone remarked to Mr. Hunt that there was no handle on the door, to which he responded, the reason is because the handle is on the inside. Jesus doesn't force his way in. It's up to you to open the door. What we have in this picture isn't a warning of judgment. Instead, it's love's tender entreaty. It's the message of Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. I was asleep, but my heart was awake. A voice, my beloved, was knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove. My perfect one. That's the pleading of Jesus. That's the pleading of Jesus with you today. Open, open your heart to me. You see, the great distinctive of Christianity from all other religions is that in every other religion, it is man who is seeking God. But in Christianity, it is God who is seeking man. Stubborn, rebellious, insisting on his own way man. God is seeking for him. Jesus knocking at the door is the picture of him searching for men and women who do not want him. That's the extreme length to which his love will go. 
As I conclude this message today, I want you to notice once again the last verse of this chapter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It is this verse that both individualizes and universalizes the message. It says to each and every person who hears it, this means you. You can't dismiss it, nor can you pass it back to the person behind you. It isn't for the person who didn't show up today. It's for you. You must evaluate your own life in light of the message to see if you are guilty. And then apply it to where you live. I just believe the Lord wants to speak to every one of us through this message. We all need to respond to his invitation. So before we get out of here, I'm going to invite you to join me at the altar. You know, the altar isn't really the place of bless me. We've made it that, you know, come forward and get prayed and get your blessing. That's not really the, that's not really the altar. The altar is the place of sacrifice. The altar is a place where you place yourself in submission to the will and the way of God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be lukewarm. I don't want to just be accommodating to everything and, 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 and where I'm indistinguishable from everything around me. I don't want to be guilty of being indifferent to the things of God. I don't want to be ignorant of the places where I miss God's best for my life. I want to pray and one more time, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to stand, please. If that's your desire, to say, Lord, I just want to draw close to you. I want to be near to you. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to invite you to join me here in the front as we come to the Lord and we pray together. where you stand make that your altar to the Lord say Lord here I am I surrender to you I give myself to you one more time do that out of your heart just pour your heart out to the Lord together here I am Lord here I am Lord A vessel of honor. Blessed Savior. 
sing that one more time, Pastor Larry. Enough. I surrender all. I surrender all. Hear our prayer, Lord. Hear our cry today.